Hello, this is not Dan, this is Sam uh, for a change. And the reason you're hearing my voice first is because uh, there was a little technical hitch while recording this episode. And so uh, for the first sort of half-ish, what you're hearing is my voice on a Skype recording. But once the technical issues are resolved, aka I remember to turn on my recorder, it will kick into a much smoother and nicer sounding version of this podcast. Seamless. Seamless. So just persevere for the first bit. And to be honest, you probably don't want to hear what I've got to say about this film anyway, if you're a fan. Uh, (laughs) Spoiler alert, I didn't like it. But anyway, uh, enjoy the episode and uh, yeah, see you on the other side. Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. Uh, my name is Dan Martin, special effects artist and living podcast. Uh, and I am joined as ever by not just a colleague, but a genuinely close friend. Ah, oh, that's, that's lovely. Sam Asher. <laughs> Sorry, I got distracted by the, the nice things. Uh, yes, and I am a writer, a director, uh, and you know, podcast person, and uh, uh, a, a person who loves Dan Martin. A weaver so now, of dreams, Sam. Now, now we've got that um, <laughs> soppy stuff out of the way. Uh, let's talk about Dan's choice. Yeah, right. The pajama girl case. Now, Dan, why don't you tell the dear sweet Arrowhead what this film is about? So it's a uh, it's a comparatively late in the game, 1978 uh, entry into the giallo uh, genre, and it seems to be widely accepted as a giallo, although it doesn't really tick very many of the boxes uh, that make up uh, a giallo, as you might think. I don't think there's any. No, there's there's one. Okay. Which is a big reveal. It has a complex plot, and un- maybe some might say unnecessarily complex plot. And the big reveal. But yeah, it doesn't have big murder set pieces. In fact, there's only one killing in the film and it happens off screen. It's, I'd say it has an amazing soundtrack. That's a good tick. The um, Rizzo Tulani and Amanda Lear soundtrack is absolutely fucking stellar. Uh, and it's, I think it's very beautifully photographed as well. Flavio Mogherini, the, the director of this. You, you need to be this. careful here, Dan, because you're eating into the only positive things I have to say about this film. <laughs> so I think you should well, just stick to I the do, plot I'll do for now. I'll... So it's it as with a lot of Giallo, it's uh, it's internationally set. It's actually set in New South Wales in Australia. It's it's two uh, comparatively unconnected stories. Um, there's a sort of a love affair narrative going on, and then at the same time, there's a policeman uh, played by Ray Milan in uh, in his later life, who's a, a retired police officer who's sort of allowed back onto the case because of his uh, insistence that he would be of use to it. Um, after a a body turns up in a car, a burnt female body turns up in a jute sack in a car on a beach in Australia, um, and they they can't work out how she died well they can't work out who killed her uh, and they can't even work out who she is so they start a very peculiar police investigation into working out who she is so they can try and figure out who who might have killed her yeah yeah it yeah um i think that's a very good summation especially the the peculiar aspect to uh the the investigation yeah there's some stuff with rice that i don't think i'm ever going to understand I love the rice stuff. 
Okay. <laughs> We're, this is this is definitely going to be one of those um, episodes. Now, my question is, why did you pick this of all the films that Ara have in their library? Why did you pick this one? Well, um, was it because it's such an oddity, or uh, do you really love it? Uh, column A, column B. Um, I mean, and then also column C, which is that it's a comparatively recent release, and Arrow like us to do stuff that's at least still available. <laughs> I mean, they'll like it till they hear it, but yeah, go well, on. No, I think 50% of us are going to be championing it hard. And, yeah, that's true. And, and, and the fact that we're allowed to be honest about our opinions adds credo to the, uh, the times when we say we love stuff, as I do with this. I genuinely love this film. I really, really like it. Um, I guess it's probably maybe like a fifth watch for me. Um, and I watched this with uh, my wife, Jen. It was her second watch, I think. Uh, and then I also watched it with a friend of the podcast, Tony Clark, Psychotronic Tony. It must be like a fourth or a fifth watch for him. I think he's definitely seen it several times. And then I also watched it, also watched it with my father-in-law, uh, Charles Handoff, Charlie Handoff, uh, who is a professional pathologist, uh, which gave me some lovely insight into it. But I think he enjoyed it as well. He um, he said he thought it was batshit, was the, uh, was the words he used. Um, uh, and there were definitely a lot of problems with it on a technical level, but I think he enjoyed it overall. Although his words were, uh, like his his final uh, summation was, uh, if I'd walked out before the end, I would have remembered it as a bad film. <laughs> Instead of just a terrible film. Instead oh, I'm of only a, joking. Uh, good film. Yes. Um, well, yeah, it's Charlie really nice. is very polite and nice, and yeah, I like Charlie, Charlie a lot. Charlie well, so Jen said something about it that I thought was a nice insight, which was that, uh, and, and obviously we're going to be quite vague about the narrative uh, past the uh, the first five minutes, just because I, I do think it's one of the the lesser watched quote unquote Gialli, uh, if it even is one. But but I yeah I absolutely love it. Um, I after we watched it I put the soundtrack on. I've got an old Italian like mono vinyl of it because I wanted to hear the Amanda Lear stuff again. But Jen said that one of the things she thought was really interesting about it, and she enjoyed it much more on a second watch, was how little, when the, the, the kind of reveal happens in the third act, when you start to realise what they've been doing, was how little they signpost it. They really do just leave you to fucking figure it out. And it's, it's for anyone who complains about Hollywood films having that scene where someone stands and goes, well, in summation, and then explains everything, which a lot of Gialli do as well, especially the, the, the sort of late 70s ones. There's a lot of like pacing up and down a hospital hallway explaining why someone's a psychopath and how the janitor wasn't really blind. Like, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's a lot of, uh, here's it, here it is again for the cheap seats. But this doesn't do any of that. This really has a lot of faith in the audience being able to string together some, some pretty complex uh, filmmaking stuff that goes against a lot of standard uh, method, a lot of standard tropes. Yeah, I, I mean, I just honestly don't see this as a jale or shallow, whatever. I just, I just, it is, you know, if this is shallow, then Columbo's shallow. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's, there's, there's none of the tropes. So that's so that's an interesting thing to note is that in Italy, giallo doesn't really mean what we think of it outside of Italy to mean. So when we think of it, we're like crazy lighting, bombastic soundtrack, crazy twist, black, black gloves. gloves. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Whereas in Italy, any thriller, it's just you know any any thriller is a giallo. The alternate title of this has giallo in the title. Yeah, yeah. The case of the girl in the yellow pajamas. Yeah. 
So, um, you know, it does have that going for it at least. But no, I just, uh, yeah, I just didn't really find it gripping at all. I found it very slow and um, a confession. And I'm so, so sorry to to anyone who's going to judge me for this. But for the first time in my life, I put this film on 1.5 speed. Shocking. Um, yeah, it's about after about half an hour, maybe 25 minutes in, I was like, I just, why are they speaking so slowly? So I put it onto <laughs> 1.5 just to see what an effect that would have. And genuinely, it turned into normal conversations. So I'm like, I'm just going to leave this. I'm just going to watch it like this. The, the downside is that the music sounded very silly. Um, and I suspected in those first 25 minutes when the music was at normal speed, I was like, I guarantee Dan not only has this on his, uh, his device to listen to at the workshop, oh, yeah. um, this music, he has this on vinyl. And so you've confirmed that for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. I knew that music would be sort of one of the ways into this view because it is so your taste. Oh, it's absolutely beautiful. Amanda Lear, for those who don't know, was Salvador Dali's muse. She started a rumour about herself that she used to be a man and she also sort of worked her way through the British pop scene. I think she was uh, in relationships with like Bowie and Jagger and that kind of stuff. She was she was a, a fascinating musical figure or, or, or figure on the musical scene. Um, and she does this, she has this sort of like Nico from the Velvet Underground kind of like discordant, like slightly atonal singing style. Um, and that matched with Ortolani's mix of sort of like doom and gloom synths and like weird upbeat pop um, make for just such a fucking great soundtrack. Yeah, and you know, uh, it's... <sighs> It's, I didn't completely hate it. You know, there are positives. There's some nice shots. The sky is pretty in Australia. Um, there's some nice lens flare at one point. Um, very nice <laughs> lens flare at one point. I am not. I, did you just say I'm clutching at straws there, Dan? I, I, not that loud. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and and it has a, a relatively interesting structure. The end. The end of, of it. The things I have to say about this film. Yeah, I, man. I mean, obviously, it's going to be divisive, and it's not exactly a roller coaster of a film. I think one of the sort of side effects of what they're doing with the structure means that it every time there's any like sort of pacey stuff to the detective story, we have to jump over to this slightly weird like love square that's going on uh, with the other narrative. But yeah, no, I really, I, I genuinely love it. I think it's a, I think it's a strong character piece. I think it's a good thriller. Um, and I and I think that by the time you get to the end, uh, there's there's something really quite unique about it as well, uh, which I can't explain in too great a depth for sake of spoiling it. Um, can you remind me the name of the British comic with the beard who looks like the beach-based sex pest? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. You, uh, I, I, it's the Joe. Joe something. Yeah, he's Beard. he's a guest on a lot of um, panel shows. He does stuff. a lot of panel shows. Yeah. yeah, I can't remember his surname. But why, why, why? Oh, just, just, just. Uh, I just like I like it when people in films from the seventies look like people from now. <laughs> that's a, well, that's a nice extra thing <laughs> for the English people who watch panel shows. I mean, yeah, <laughs> like this is this. It's such a weird film, man. It's such a but weird do you film. Not, but you love weird films. No, I do, but in a kind of consistent way, I guess. Like, I still don't understand why 
like I I know laws are different in each country. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> however, <laughs> I think I know what you're moving to. However, <laughs> the the I'm going to keep this vague for anyone who hasn't seen it. But the glass no, case scene. Yeah, no. See, I think that's genuinely fantastic because they. I mean, they they briefly address they pay a little bit of lip service to the fact that it is quote unorthodox. But it's so fucking good because the ostensibly it's about this sort of like grotesque voyeurism. Mm. You know, you've got society. So very low key spoiler alert. It's not a big turning point in the film. It's a, it is a big event in the film. If you want to skip 20 seconds, do it. But when they're trying to identify this body, they put her in a glass case. Uh, her features have been completely burnt away. So it's very hard to tell who she is. They put her in a glass case and they invite people to just come and walk past uh, to the extent that there's even a bit where someone tries to take a photograph and the police like, no, no, no photographs. You're just here to see if you can identify her. But it's so she's voyeuristic. The um, the guy that looks like the British comic, the the, the beach sex pest. Uh, when we first meet him, he's uh, watching a woman from the window of his caravan and masturbating. He's a he's a voyeur there. Um, like a lot of the movie is about like extracting yourself from what's going on and the the moral implications of that even to the extent that when the autopsy is first being done on the body it we have this lovely sequence where the police are kind of underlit in the foreground and their conversation is what we need to be hearing but then through the window behind them is the overlit autopsy room where the autopsy is being done uh, on the body uh, and that's what we're meant to be watching and uh, again as i said my my uh, pathologist father-in-law watched this with us and he said oh well that was definitely filmed in a real autopsy theater that's a that's a real autopsy room for a lot of reasons and he explained that in in real life the reason they have that window there is because they don't want the police to be able to say anything to the people doing the autopsy that might uh like skew how they describe what they find because they're there to literally just write down everything in cold clinical fact and the police are much more emotional much more deductive much more what does this mean um, and so they have to be kept separate. Uh, and the idea of this, like a lot of this film is about, oh, it's about how you see something. It's about your perspective changing the way you understand something, even down to the way in which they format the whole film. The structure of the movie is very subjective, which means that the second view is very, very different to the first. Yeah, I, I, I say this was my first time watch for this, and I, I unfortunately got what they were doing quite quickly relatively quickly i'd say and so um so yeah i was kind of waiting for it to play out rather than i was kind of surprised but that is you know that is one of the the risks of what we do you know the amount of films we watch and you know films that both of us have written and all the rest of it you know our our brains are built for analyzing every single decision and it's like why have they why are they doing it this way oh it must be that you know um yeah well like you know the, the, on a very low key version of it a, a, a long standing joke when sam and i watch films together is to be is to point out a narrative plant we'll be like don't worry about this gun i'm putting in the drawer that won't be very important later you know or similar because you know there's a certain amount of uh, like shorthand but also of um like efficiency that has to be done in a narrative you know you you've got to do your the Chekhov's gun works both ways. It's not just that if you show a gun in the first act, you've got to use it in the third. It's also that if you have a gun in the third act, you really have to kind of show it 
in the first. Otherwise, people are like, well, where the fuck did that come from? But everyone's wise to that now. Yeah. So the second, the, you know, when someone's pointed, when, when someone's polishing a massive shiny sculpture below a mezzanine, you know, most horror fans know that sooner or later someone's falling on that sculpture. This you is know. it. And, and um, it's funny you should say that because I was having this exact conversation with Joss Seiko, um, who, uh, for anyone listening who isn't aware, uh, is Cigarette Burns. At um, Cigarette Burns. <laughs> very cool. Uh, he puts on lots of cool film events um, and he's involved in Miskatonic and all, all, all this kind of stuff. And we were at Dan's birthday party yesterday uh, and he mentioned, this is a very low-key spoiler for um, Midsummer, but not really because it happens quite early on, um, but there is a bear in Midsummer, and um, <laughs> they, they actually say, oh, you know, don't worry about that bear. Um, and, and Josh found it refreshing because I told him about our in-joke, Dan, that, you know, whenever we're watching stuff, we, yeah, we yeah. say that. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, he found it really refreshing that someone kind of did that in a, in a film. <laughs> um, I, so. my, my problem with that was that I thought that someone was going to fight the bear, <laughs> like that, that someone was going to get in a ring and have to fight a bear in Midsummer. And then the fact that that doesn't happen just disappointed me. Yeah, I mean, that's fair enough. All films should have a fighting bear. Um, shall we move on to recommendations? Yeah, I think that's that's legit. Let's do that. Okay, Grant. Would you like to start? Yeah. Um, so I struggled a little bit with recommendations based on this because everything that came to mind was sort of contextually a spoiler. So I've just gone... I've, I've gone for two things, one of which is, a, a, again, another slightly underseen giallo with a, with a slightly weird uh, element to it, a weird giallo. Um, and the and the other of which isn't a giallo, but has a couple of connections to it that I feel like might make sense. Um, so the first one I'm going to recommend is a 1976 Spanish giallo by Pupi Avati uh, called The House of the Laughing Windows, which I know God Sam is a fan damn of. damn it. I am a fan oh, of it. I, is it one of yours? It's one of mine, but I've got a backup, so it's fine. Thank God. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I knew Sam liked this. We've watched it together. It's a, it's a delightful movie. Um, it's got a fucking great ending. <laughs> it really it's, has. Uh, it's got one of the most out there endings of all of the Giallo. And I think it's probably, even though it's not Italian, it, it probably uh, earns the title of being a Giallo slightly more than Yellow Pajama Girl Case. But yeah, so tonally it's not that similar, but it's just another, like one of the slightly less famous gialli that you should check out. Yeah. So, yeah, that. <laughs> yep, great recommendation, uh, so much so that it was my recommendation also. But I have a different House film to recommend, mm. uh, House of the Yellow Carpet. Um, oh, I've never seen House of the Yellow Carpet, Sam. Tell me about it. Uh, well, uh, the sort of main reason I'm recommending it is um, it's another giallo or jali that, isn't really a giallo or a gialli. It's um, I think giallo is singular and gialli is plural. By the way, yeah, I I know, but I just I don't know. I'm so tired, dear sweet <laughs> arrowhead, dear precious listener. We drank quite a lot yesterday. Dan is oh, yeah. coping with it far better than I am. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was um, Dan's uh, special birthday. My 40th um, birthday. 40th birthday. So um, lots of fun was had. But uh, yeah, I am struggling. Uh, but anyway, you don't need to know that. What you need to know is that um, it's basically about uh, a couple who decide to sell a yellow rug, um, which was a gift 
from uh, the woman's stepfather. And um, yes, someone uh, applies to buy the rug and um, shit goes down. I'm not going to say any more than that because uh, it is all spoilery. But as you can you probably... had me at it's a giallo. Well, exactly. <laughs> or is it? It isn't. But is it? It's got yellow in the title, so I guess it and is. That's the connection. Yeah, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I would put it very much alongside uh, Pajama Girl case in terms of quality. Um, so... Which I you hate them both. <laughs> no, I mean it. It is basically one which again will be divisive and on, for that one I fall on the side of I like it but I can totally understand why people don't like it um, yeah it's uh, yeah and it's fairly underseen and I wonder if it's one that Arrow will pick up at some point in the future um, are we are we both in agreement that Hong Jin Na's The Yellow Sea is a giallo yes of course we are <laughs> based based on that I mean based on criterion. this yeah, yeah definitely 100% <laughs> But, you know, the Yellow Sea is... Basically, if you only watch one film, watch that film, because it's all films. If, if you only watch one film, yeah. watch this one, all of them. Exactly. <laughs> um, thank you, Garth Marenghi. But, uh, yes, Dan, what is next for you, recommendation-wise? Uh, so I, I am denied about whether to include this one, because I feel like I've recommended it before. I, but I, I couldn't work out what I would have connected it to, so I'm just going to take a punt and recommend it pot potentially again. Uh, it's a 1999 film based on a Ramsey Campbell novel directed by Jamie Balaguero. It's Nameless, a.k.a. Los Sin Ombre. Uh, yeah. Did, which, mm, did that play at Fright Fest? Did you recommend that on the Fright Fest episode? No, no, I don't think it played at Fright right, Fest. Okay. I, so I have a Hong Kong DVD of it, and I think it's come out in England since then, mm. maybe. But for a long time, it was very hard to get hold of uh, with English subtitles. It's a really fucking great thriller. Uh, as I describe it, I become increasingly sure that I've at least talked about it, if not made it one of my official recommendations before. But, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. Um, it's uh, about a woman whose marriage breaks down after her daughter is uh, abducted and then killed and then found all bloated and gross in a well. And then a few years later, she gets a phone call uh, from someone who claims to be her daughter. Uh, so it's a little bit uh, like a first... Fuck, I don't know what the version of first person is when it's a different character. But uh, it's a little bit like the George C. Scott film Hardcore, which I've been referencing a lot recently. Oh, um, one of my favourite films. But, oh, so, so fucking good. Lovely Blu-ray out at the moment. I, I have um, uh, the Italian original poster for Hardcore. I love, oh, I love it. It's... An, an absolute beaut. It's yeah. it's yeah. It's it's among the two best George C. Scott performances. I say. Oh God, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, so it's um yeah. So she she gets a phone call from a from a voice claiming to be that of her dead daughter, and she goes in search, and things are not as they appear. Hooray! Um, it's yeah, it, it's fantastic. If you've not seen it, it's well worth tracking down. Um, uh, and and again, it's I'd say it's as much of a giallo <laughs> as hmm. Girl in the Yellow Pajamas, although it's not technically classed as a giallo. So, but the, but both of the films are recommending a Spanish. So there you go. Yeah, nice, <laughs> nice. My next recommendation is one that most people listening to this podcast will already have seen, 
and will have also heard me talk about, so I won't go into it into great depth. But there are elements of this, minor elements of this, that reminded me of Cat of Nine Tales, which for me is a superior film. So if you haven't seen it, or if you haven't listened to our podcast about it, then go back and listen to that, because uh, that's one of my favourites, I think, that we did. It's really tough. Like, I really like Cat of Nine Tales. I think I might prefer... Yellow Pajama Girl. Are you kidding me? But but Cat and Nine Tails is 100 times more of a giallo. Yeah. So, like, if you have to watch one giallo from this, (laughs) well, then there's no contest because there's only one giallo. But but I do think it's a very good recommendation. I think they actually make a very good double bill as well. uh, Because Cat and Nine Tails is also about subjectivity because it's about being robbed of of a sense. Yeah. So it's about relying on information from others, about limited information coming in. Uh, they, yeah, they're a very good double bill. So yeah, a, a strong recommendations, I'd say. Uh, and speaking of recommendations, we also recommend things based on what we watched over the past couple of weeks on this podcast. And so, Dan, what have you watched over the past couple of weeks? Uh, so uh, Jen and I have been back on our Jen Loves England trip. Um, those of you uh in the know know that my wife is naturally american but uh i think one of the reasons i was able to trick her into coming to this country and living here full-time uh was basically what england looked like in 60s and 70s film Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh she loves all that um so uh at three in the morning uh last weekend uh we put on fear in the night from 1972 and one of the things that uh yeah, no, I just, oh, I just fucking love it. So obviously, we've talked about Jimmy Sangster a fair, you know, we've talked about him a fair few times on this. He wrote and directed *Fear in the Night*. I think it's, it might be Cushing's like scariest performance, most menacing performance. Yeah. Um, and actually, it's got. Uh, oh, oh, I don't want to say too much. It's got a. It's it's one of those films that plays with the. It, it sets up a situation where the audience is allowed to question whether or not the supernatural is is occurring. One of the lovely inbuilt things about writing genre cinema or about making genre cinema is that you, you if you provide a set of like environmental rules to your audience, they'll just go along with it. You go, oh yeah, guess what? There's a fucking talking dog in this movie. And you're like, yeah, fine, whatever. On we go. Let's have the story. You go, oh, guess what? There's a ghost. Yeah, all right. I don't believe in ghosts in the real world, but in the, for the sake of this movie, I totally believe in ghosts. On we go. So one of the things I love in cinema is when it provides one of those things that you would normally be super willing to get on board with, and then it questions whether or not that's a realistic thing to buy into. So in Fear in the Night, a young woman moves to a, a like a fancy boarding school with her comparatively recent husband. Um, Cushing plays the the headmaster there, and his young wife Joan Collins uh, is there in a, just a fantastic performance. And and the school is closed for the holidays. It's like a sort of austere British boarding school. The school's closed for the holidays, and there's these amazing scenes where the the young wife exploring this big open space, uh, and you know how like how creepy a place that should be populated that isn't can be. Um, she'll hear all of the children through the door and then she'll open the door and it just stops and there's no one there. And it's this amazing moment. And all the way through, you're invited to say, is she, is she imagining it? Is, it? is it haunted? 
What is the reason for this? There's a whole, uh, there's a whole not subplot at all, like key plot about the fact that she was attacked in London before they left to go to the school. It's yeah, it's an astonishing film. It's yeah. <laughs> just just watch it. Just watch it now. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, it is a really good one. Uh, yeah, I'm a fan of that one as well. Um, and dear sweet precious Arrowhead, if only you could hear the behind-the-scenes version of this podcast. <laughs> Dan has started to struggle <laughs> um, in a way that you'll never hear. Um, but I'm, Listen, I'm glad that I'm not the only <laughs> hungover one. Yeah, I'm not hungover, Sam. I'm still drunk. That's a tactical <laughs> choice. That's what I should have done. But yeah, my first recommendation from the past couple of weeks will actually be in cinemas now as you listen to this. But um, Dan and I separately were lucky enough to go to the first UK screening of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I know Dan's feelings about it, so I won't try and get those out of him too much because I'm trying to be positive. Uh, Try and stop Because I actually love this film. <laughs> I, I really love this film. I found it incredibly warm um, and kind of quite comforting. Um, I could have watched it if it was double or triple the length. And it also, in, in addition to the sort of the warm stuff, it for me contains one of Tarantino's most tense, most horror-like scenes um, in his filmography. And uh, obviously, I love my horror. And um, yeah, just amazing performances all round. And um, yeah, I just found it very kind of cathartic and, and weirdly nice and weirdly sweet. So once upon a time in Hollywood, to be honest, if you're going to see it, you've probably already seen it because it's opening weekend. Um, but if you haven't had a chance or if you've sort of... You, don't really fancy it because maybe you feel it's too long it really flies by and um i think you should give it a go this week because uh it's one that i think will grow in reputation over the years and yeah. um i think it's definitely worth seeing on the big screen Damn. yeah I, I mean to be honest as, as sam alluded i i have some some problems with the film but what i would say is it's worth seeing and it's definitely worth seeing on the big screen so, you know, for whatever my misgivings, whatever my problems with the movie, they don't outweigh the fact that it is an exceptionally well-made film. Yeah. I will definitely endorse Sam's statement that despite its length, it flies by. It never dragged. I was never bored at any time. There were a couple of bits that, that yeah, I found a little problematic. It, it's interesting. You know how that thing where, like, sometimes you see a movie and you don't really like it, and then as you get a bit of distance from it, you like it a bit more? Yeah. And then other times you see a movie and you really like it in the moment, and then as you get a bit of distance from it, you start seeing the problems with it, and you're like, oh, fuck, actually, that wasn't... Maybe that wasn't as good. It was just bombastic and loud and exciting, but it wasn't very well made. Um, this is kind of the opposite of both of those, where the more distance I get, the more problems I have with the stuff I found problematic, but the more I enjoyed the bits I liked. Wow, that's so I'm, interesting. So I'm really heavily torn by this film. That's really interesting. Um, I think there maybe, are, maybe it's worth seeing again. Yeah, no, I, I will definitely watch it again. Um, whether or not I see it on the big screen again, I don't know. But um, I saw someone tweet the other day, and I can't remember who it was, otherwise I'd give them credit for it, that Brad Pitt is a character actor stuck in an A-lister's body. Oh, yeah, I saw that. And that's a that's a that's an absolutely fantastic way of describing him. He's so fucking good in this. He's, uh, he's unreal he's, in this. Yeah, I, this, I, I feel like as, as performances go, this is possibly a career high for him. Yeah. It's, he's so fucking good. He's relatable, but, but problematic, but like not in a, 
not problematic like the film, but problematic like he's not just overtly perfect. Like, yeah, yeah. it's just a really fucking solid so, performance. So I was, uh, you know, not to blow my own trumpet, because obviously I'm very reticent to do that, but yeah. I was the first person in the world, Dan, to review Inglorious Bastards. Um, really? Yeah, I saw it at the... Um, the can screening, and it just so happened that I was the first person to get my review live because um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm very competitive. And uh, it's yeah. all about winning. Go on, what was that? It's all about winning. It's all about winning. And yeah, I predicted in that review that Christoph Waltz would win the Oscar for his performance. It was very, very obvious. And I feel like it's just as obvious that Brad Pitt will get Best Supporting Actor. Though there is an argument that he's the lead for me, but we'll we'll get into that on yeah, another day. Yeah, I, no, I agree with you. I think it's it's more about... I mean, obviously, the, the structure of the film is about the mirroring or the sort yeah. of anti-mirroring of their lives. Yes. And and that's some of the places where the structure of the film is at its best. Yeah, is is the the juxtaposition of their experience, and and the one thing something that is uh, like play for one of them that's real for the other. There's some very very fucking deft filmmaking in this, and and, mm. and that's the thing. Like I've never thought that Tarantino wasn't very very good at making films. Mm. I just think he's not very good at being a person. <laughs> <laughs> well, well. On that note, we shall move on to your next recommendation, Dan. What else have you been watching this fortnight? Um, a few nights ago, I got to uh, go to the opening night of a gallery uh, bar, which is curated by Camilla Cole, who is the partner of Josh, a uh, wife of Josh Seiko Cigarette Burns, uh, called We Sing the Body Electric in London. And uh, and as I was uh, stood in the uh, beer garden at the back of that, chatting to Josh and uh, Tony, Psychotronic Tony, um, who I mentioned, we were talking about obscure films uh, that we that we'd wanted to see, and I know that you <laughs> gave me a little bit of a hard time uh, last time because we weren't rec- weren't recommending films. I'm doing air quotes, and I recommended Putney Swope uh, anyway, the most recent print. Tony mentioned Pound, which I'd not heard of, mm. the Robert Downey Senior kind of follow up to Putney Swope. Oh, okay, it's not uh, not narratively connected to it, but it's his follow up film. It's got a lot of the same cast and crew, or well, some of the same cast, some of the same crew. And we managed to dig out a copy of it. And, oh boy, I desperately want everybody to have seen this film. Uh, I can only assume that either there's some, like, grotesque rights catch-up, like, hold-up with it. It was released as part of a... It was released on DVD in the States a few years back, but it's it's, it's certainly not common. Um, or maybe there's just not the, the master... Like, maybe there's not the material there to get a good quality master for a Blu-ray, but I really want someone to pick it up. Pound, uh, it's from uh, 1970... Yeah, 1970, which is only two years before Fear in the Night. When you think about how, like, sort of, like, colloquial and homey Fear in the Night is and how, like, out there and funky Pound is, uh, it's astonishing that it's from two years earlier. But it's basically uh, set in a dog pound in New York... Uh, and after a few minutes uh, in the dog pound, uh, a little 360 intercut swaps out all the dogs for human actors. And the rest of the movie is human actors playing dogs, which, you know, in the light of the recent Cats trailer is amazing, talking about, like, how they got there, what their plans are, what their hopes are. So you've got, like, one guy who's like, we've got to bust out of here. If we don't get out of here tonight, it's the needle. And you've got other people, like, bemoaning the fact that they're not wanted anymore, that they're not loved. It's 
genuinely fantastic. And there's a really lovely cameo from a very, very young uh, Robert Downey Jr., who is merely credited as the puppy. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. It's, it's fucking great. Uh, Charlie Coover, who did the soundtrack to Putney Swope, does the, again, does the soundtrack to this, has a couple of weird little musical numbers, which again ties it to Cats. Uh, there's like a big song and dance psychedelia number uh, and a little a, a cappella uh, song at the top that the, uh, the woman that runs the dog pound sings to the dogs when they arrive. Uh, that sounds amazing. And how can people watch that? Um, what what? Is it on DVD uh, or is it? Yeah, um, there's a second. There's a second hand. Is a second hand DVD. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's a first hand DVD once. There's second hand DVDs now. So uh, just Amazon and, 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 the, and, and the whole the whole film is on YouTube. Oh, okay, right, cool, cool. Um, but hopefully, someone will 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 legitimately swipe up the rights, take it off YouTube, and release a beautiful Blu-ray. Yeah, it always it always makes me sad to see films on YouTube. Um, I mean, it's, it makes me it, very happy to see films on YouTube if it's the only way I can watch them. It is how <laughs> I watch this. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I, I hear you. But I, I do wonder if that puts people off releasing stuff. Um, it's a bit of a vicious circle, isn't it? Because um, maybe people see stuff on YouTube and like, oh, well, if people can access it for free. Let's not bother releasing it. Man, you say that, but the VOD world out there is such a fucking shit show. Yeah. I watched, uh, on my birthday, Tony and I watched um, Hitchhike and The Detour back-to-back, mm. two sort of like sort of noirs that I'd never seen. And we, they're both on Amazon Prime. So we watched uh, we watched Hitchhike first, which I very much enjoyed. And then we started Detour. And as Detour went on, the sound just got worse and worse. Like it desynchronized throughout. So I was like, well, maybe it's not the file. Maybe it's playback. So I'll, I'll pause it. I'll stop it. I'll quit um, the Amazon app on the PlayStation. I'll restart it, whatever. And then when I searched for it, I realized that they've put up two versions. There's two separate versions, both available on Prime. Uh, on Amazon that are just different files. Like, they've not bothered checking their own hosting library, so they've put up two versions. The second one was a better print and in sync. But the fact that they haven't deleted the one that is natively out of sync and a shittier copy, like, there's just... Oh, it's constantly, like, just mm. bad audio and not the right ratio, and they just don't fucking care at all. It's really sad. Yeah, no, that is that is annoying. Um, the moral of the story is physical media, yes, thank you. Exactly, always physical. And speaking of physical media forever, one thing that I watched, uh, or the next thing that I watched over the past fortnight, uh, is Old Boy, um, oh. which I went to see at the Prince Charles Cinema. Um, there's a, a limited run of uh, opportunities to watch Old Boy on the big screen. And I'm not sure if it will still be happening when this podcast goes up, um, but maybe there's a chance that I'm only talking directly to the people who also went to see Old Boy on the big screen with this recommendation. But if there is a chance that you can see it in that way, this restoration is absolutely beautiful. Um, it's such a beautiful film. Yeah, and it was just such a genuinely thrilling experience to um, see that on the big screen with an audience. Um, an audience that included some people who clearly hadn't seen it before because... Um, really? Yeah, they were squirming in their seats um, at certain moments in the film. Uh, let's not go into it too much, obviously, because we are definitely going to do an old boy episode at some point. It will be, you know, one of my choices, one of Dan's oh, yeah, choices. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. You know, one of a us will A unanimous choice. It. Yeah, um, it's just such an incredible film. Um, but yeah, uh, if you can see old boy on the big screen... Uh, now go go now um, it is worth it Dan 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 
Shall we move into extra features? Extra features? Extra features. Extra features. Right, so, Dan. Dan. Yes, hello. We're doing a live podcast, aren't we? We are doing a live podcast. It's very exciting. It is very exciting. And one of the most exciting elements, aside from the fact that we will be there, and aside from the fact that Arrow will be there, and they'll be giving away free stuff to cool people... Um, or uncool people, you know, we, we can't, can't really judge that on site. It's really hard to police. Yeah. <laughs> but um, basically, you're going to get good stuff. And you're also going to get uh, a whole load of guests. Now, Dan, uh, who are some of the guests who are going to be there? Uh, so we're going to have Ant Timpson uh, joining us, longtime producer, new time director, um, and director of the opening film uh, at Fryfest this year is uh, is going to be with us, which is very exciting. Uh, Abigail Blackmore, director of Tales from the Lodge, which is playing at the festival, also will, uh, will be joining us. Um, Sam, who who else have we got? We've got Rob Grant, the director of Harpoon, um, which was one of my picks. I'm very excited. Um, to speak to him or, or, or for us both to speak to him or whoever it is that ends up speaking to him. <laughs> uh, we're very organised, dear sweet precious Arrowhead. Uh, we also have my friend um, and brief contributor to last year's podcast when we pulled him out of the audience to help us out. Um, we figured he deserved a full interview, um, not least because he's made a really great fun film that's playing at Fright Fest yeah, this year. It's not that he deserves the interview, it's that the audience deserves the interview it's, because he's actually, he's got a picture at the festival. Exactly. He's got the barge people and it's Charlie Steeds. Um, and Charlie does so much, so many films. And I think he's quite inspirational um, in terms of people who love movies who then go on to make movies. So um, I think he'll have a lot of good advice for any uh, potential filmmakers out there. Um, and he's just a really lovely, interesting guy. So Charlie will be coming along. And then we also have the previously announced Heather Buckley, who's the producer of the Al Adamson documentary that's playing at Fright Fest this year, which both Dan and I really, really enjoyed. Um, uh, forgive me for, for laughing at that, but I've just tried to say that name at least 15 times and I can't get it right. So I'm just going to um, I'm just going to carry on. What's next, Dan? How how hard can it be to say Alana does? <laughs> oh fuck! <laughs> Honestly, man, what was in that wine? Um, so good, right? What's uh, well, you've got? You've got a special extra feature, haven't you? Yeah. Well, so uh, as I mentioned earlier, I watched uh, Yellow Pajama Girl case with my father-in-law Charlie Handorf, who is a, uh, a professional pathologist, and uh, and he made a few comments during the movie about the realism and not realism in terms about the way that the film portrayed the uh, pathological process and I asked him if he'd be willing to go on mic about uh, about cinematic depiction of this particular thing as as watchers and enjoyers of horror films and thrillers uh, you know giallos and, and and so on we we're very familiar with the autopsy room as a as a trope as a as a location in these films um, and I thought it might be nice to get a little bit of insight from someone who has spent most of his professional career in that room so uh so yeah so i interviewed charlie it's not not long but uh yeah I'll have a little chat with him about uh about about how he feels seeing his workplace so regularly depicted on screen i'm joined here by dr charles handolf a pathologist and uh someone with whom i have just watched the yellow pajama girl case um charlie thanks for for joining me positively 
obviously you have insight into the practical uh, side of the the uh, the medical process in this in this film and in in any film you watch um, because of your work. Was there anything that struck you about the movie we just watched? Well, yeah, Daniel, there was. Um, you're teaching me about Giallo in in watching this movie. But as the story unfolded, I was struck by one particular scene uh, in which the uh, detectives involved with the the case at hand were uh, in an autopsy room uh, in a facility looking through a glass window into the actual uh, space where the autopsy was being done. I think I mentioned to you that that's very interesting first to me, first of all, because it was constructed as a proper facility for performing forensic autopsies should be structured. And by that, I mean the separation of the police from the actual room where the, where the case was being done. Uh, in so many depictions in television and films, the police come barging into the autopsy room and they're mucking around and they're looking and asking questions and touching things. That's really not the way it's supposed to be done. In this movie, it was done exactly the way it's supposed to be done. There's supposed to be a physical and actual separation between the authorities, the detectives, and the forensic pathologists doing their work because it should not be influenced by police work. You don't see it done properly very often in that case. Actually, in the most cases I'm familiar with, it's not done properly at all. (laughs) <laughs> One of the many things that irritates me about these sorts of of, of, uh, of shows, be it television or movies, uh, but of course, you know, it it is what it is. Unfortunately, though, it gives the impression that uh, the forensic scientists and pathologists work for the police instead of for the people. I will tell you that as a practical matter, in, more, in many cases, I wouldn't say more than not, but in many cases, it is actually the fact that the forensic uh, professionals are working more for the police than with the police. And, and that's... In real life. In real life. In real life. I, 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 the, the point I was making in the movie, watching the movie, is that's the way it's supposed to be done. And that's the way it is done in many places, but in far too many other places, there isn't that separation. Um, so it's interesting that they go from doing it so by the book and so properly in that scene to being so incredibly off book later I with think their, it is. their methods of identification. I, it makes me wonder if, if, if in setting up the film, it, it just was a happy circumstance that they picked a facility that was that was properly uh, arrayed. Uh, because clearly, as the story unfolds, things go wrong really <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you very, very much for spending time with me and sharing your insights. Absolutely, I enjoyed it. Thank you much. Wonderful. Very, very interesting. Good work, Dan. And um, thank you, Charlie, for uh, being part of the podcast. Oh, always a delight to talk to Charlie. Yeah, he's, he's a great, great man. Um, all right. Well, uh, let's wrap this up. And, and once again, apologies for uh, 
the technical difficulties that are a result of me drinking a heroic amount of wine yesterday. Um, I, the, the fact that you consume that much wine is astonishing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, we, we had a lot man. of we had a, a life endangering amount of beer and then a uh, a sideline amount of wine. Uh, and then Sam brought more wine. <laughs> yes, and then proceeded to only have wine in pint glasses. And um, I do not advise that, um, my friends, my Arrowhead friends. Um, do not drink, do not smoke, only watch movies. Um, it's all you need. <laughs> you, are you suggesting a movie-based straight-edge lifestyle, sir? Oh, maybe that can be the basis of the cult that I'm trying to form. <laughs> Um, Are you starting a cult? What's that? Are you starting a cult? I mean, ideally, I would like to start a cult. Um, if any Arrowheads are interested in being a part of this, I'm not sure what our ideology is going to be, but I've got long hair and quite a nice beard, so I figured it's probably, you know, a good sideline project for Can me. I ask you two cult questions? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so firstly, what's your name going to be? Uh, again, haven't decided that. Any help will be greatly appreciated. Letters on a postcard, the names on a postcard, suggestions on a postcard uh, to Arrow Video at London. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's right. And then secondly, how is everyone going to have to kill themselves in your cult? Well, I mean, I, I think actually I'm going to invert the normal stereotype and I'm going to instruct the cult members to kill me. Um, oh, wow. Uh, just sort of pile on basically would depend depends on how many i get but um yeah so like on that, that medieval thing where someone's crushed <laughs> under a board <laughs> on that but beautiful big uplifting rocks, note members right yes off we go i think we Sorry. need to i mean, need to stop Move this because this it weird. may it weird. may end up being used in court at some point uh thank you so much for listening not and for you you're going to have been crushed under a thousand adoring cult members yeah exactly but i don't want them to get into trouble for it like i asked them to do it anyway i i sincerely mean this this week we promise to be more professional <laughs> next time because how can we not uh, all right. Oh, Bye-bye. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. <laughs>